The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. How are you this morning? It's good to be back with you. If you missed me a couple months ago, my name is Richard Beck, and I'm the, the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University. And you might be asking yourself, why do they have a psychologist keep coming back? Well, they're just paying me to keep an eye on you. Um, so I, I write a little report on how healthy you are. And uh, uh, No, uh, last time I was here, I talked about the devil. Does anybody remember that? And if that seemed weird, today's going to be weirder. Uh, you, you keep inviting me back, I'll get weirder and weirder on you tonight. There's, there's going to be about five minutes in the middle of the sermon. It'll be probably the strangest moment you've ever had on a Sunday morning. Uh, before we get there... Uh, I want to start with uh, my favorite moment in the Gospels. I'm sure everybody has their kind of favorite Jesus moment in the Gospels, something that really particularly moves them. Um, the story that I want to share comes from Mark uh, chapter 1. Uh, it's a very short little story. So Jesus traveled to the next village and the one after that. Throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and casting out unclean spirits. And a leper walked right up to Jesus and dropped to his knees, and he begged him for help. And the leper said, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus was powerfully moved and he reached out and he touched the leper. And he said, I do want to be clean. Now, if you know anything about lepers in the, in the Old and New Testament, do you remember what they have to do in the book of Leviticus? Whenever a leper would approach a social group like this one, if a leper was to emerge through those doors, do you know what the, the law said they had to do? They had to stand up and they had to declare to the group in a, in a warning unclean unclean sometimes they even wore bells on their clothing so that the sound of their approach would be known and that it would give everybody a chance in the room to back away and so what i find shocking about this story is th is that he even made it to jesus because i'm sure when that leper approached everybody backed up except for one lone solitary figure who does not move or give ground and the leper approaches and he falls at his knees and he asks for healing and my favorite moment in all four gospels is what happened next it says jesus reached out and touched him and, and i think maybe it's because i'm a psychologist that i pay so much attention to that touch because I kind of imagine what it would have felt like to be a leper, to, to everywhere you go say unclean, unclean, and every time you do that, see everybody running away from you. I mean, when was the last time this man had been touched with any affection, hugged, embraced? What we take for granted, everybody fleeing his presence, and I see Jesus putting a hand on him, and the man just shuddering with a deep ache, a deep need that had finally been met. And I believe that that touch is the thing that really healed that man. 
because it said this leprosy, this thing that you think is between you and I, Jesus blows right through it and says, I see you exactly as you are, and you are loved. And then once that's done, then what does he say? Almost as an afterthought, be clean. Because isn't the ordering everything in this story? Isn't it a very different story to say to somebody from a distance, wait, whoa, whoa, be clean first, then come in for a hug. It's a different story to hug somebody regardless, unconditionally, radically, and even offensively, and then say, be clean. I was with uh, the speaker, author, pastor, Brian Zahn. Some of you know Brian's work. And uh, I was at a conference with him. He was presenting on a book he had written called How Beauty Will Save the World. It's a quote from the Russian novelist Dostoevsky. Beauty will save the world. And Brian's point in his book is that uh, a lot of people aren't attracted to religion, especially organized religion. Church is hard for lots of people. Um, But most people, even atheists, even the secular post-Christian world, finds Jesus beautiful. And so his recommendation is, you know, we don't go out there and tell people, talk about the church, talk about Christianity, it's all its mix-ups and hang-ups and problems and muddled history. We just lead with Jesus. If we could just present Jesus, his beauty will attract and save the world. And I agree. But when I think about this story and other stories, I'm struck by how I don't know if we really do find Jesus beautiful. Do we? You think the people standing around that day when Jesus reached out and touched a leper and became ritually unclean in the contact, their hearts just melted and they just went, oh, that is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Do you think the Pharisees were attracted to the beauty of Jesus breaking bread and embracing tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Do you think they looked at him and went, that is beautiful. I want a piece of that. There's something shocking and transgressive about Jesus's beauty. It's a beauty that kind of is difficult. It's hard. It's, I do think beauty will save the world, but it's, it's a radical kind of beauty. And I use the word transgressive there. It's a word from the art community. Transgressive art is art that offends our aesthetic and artistic sensibilities, cuts across the grain of what we think is beautiful. It shocks us. Have you ever been to a modern art museum and looked at something and go, like, what is that? That's it. That's transgressive art. This is a transgressive beauty, a transgressive love. You're in a series on love. And sometimes we just talk about love like it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And then you see Jesus loving the wrong people, and there's something in our hearts that hesitates. Well, I've spent a lot of time as a psychologist studying that hesitation, that reluctance to love the hard-to-love people. And, and that's kind of what I want to talk a little bit here in the middle of this. Um, and to do that, I need, actually need some volunteers. Um, I'm going to hand out some Dixie cups. If you'd like to help me out with this next little thing, just raise your hand, and I'll give you a Dixie cup. You, you want one? 
I need a couple of people. Don't be shy. Nobody's going to be hurt. Anybody else? All right, you guys, you can share one. Anybody else over here? What we're going to talk about is moral psychology and how this moral psychology affects. Anybody over here? You look really excited to participate in this. <laughs> that is worrisome. Uh, there's two cups right there. Okay. Um, okay, the first part of this, everybody can participate in. So I want you to take a second. And I said this would be odd. I want you to just gather some spittle in your mouth and swallow it. Go ahead. Can you do it? How'd that feel? Weird, I know, uh, drawing your attention to it. Most of it, no problem. All right, my Dixie Cup people, hold them up. Where are you? You got it? You got it? Okay, what if I were to ask you now for us to spit in the Dixie Cup and quickly re-drink it? <laughs> Actually, somebody did this last night, and uh, we all had trouble moving forward with the sermon at that point. Um, most of us would have problems with that. A little bit. You could do it. But it's definitely different, isn't it? It's a little different. And swallowing the spittle in your mouth versus spitting in a cup and quickly re-drinking it. There's, but if you think about it, there's a little physical difference between the two acts, is there not? A little physical difference, but a huge emotional difference between the two things. And why is that? What's the difference? You had to give an explanation. The difference seems to be that when the spit is inside us, it's a part of me, right? And if it's a part of me, then I don't tend to have a problem with it. But the minute it leaves the body, instantaneously, an affectional boundary appears that marks it now as what? Not me. Foreign. Alien. Something that I don't want to reincorporate back in. The point here is, is that this emotion of disgust and revulsion is inherently a, a boundary marker. It marks an inside and it marks an outside. It, it's, it's an emotion that creates an affectional circle. Anything on the inside of that affectional circle, in this case inside my body, is, is beloved. It's part of me. Anything on the outside is, well, we hesitate. We are a bit wary of it coming and crossing inside. And you might seem that this has very little to do with what happens in Mark chapter 1, except for psychologists have observed that this emotion, this boundary-marking emotion, isn't just involved in food. It gets imported into our social lives as well. We begin treating other human beings as possible pollutants and contaminants that we don't want to welcome inside the circle's of our affections. Do you remember playing those contamination games on the playground? What'd you call it? I called it cooties, right? Kids very early on, they don't need to be taught this, but ostracized groups, the weird kids, the strange kids, immediately get identified as, as kind of disgusting. And yeah, we grow up and we don't play cooties anymore, but just take an inventory of the way you describe people you despise. What are the words we use to describe other human beings? They're gross, 
They're creepy. They give me the eebie-jeebies. They're a little icky. He's slimy. We compare people to rats and rodents and insects and snakes. People are trash or trashy. And all of that is this primal, intuitive idiom that people who are unlike me, those people, there's something subhuman about them. And a circle of affections is drawn. Maybe now not on the boundary of our body, but our personal space, our churches, our schools, our neighborhoods, our nation. What are those people crossing over into my space for? It's the psychology of us versus them. And what's interesting about it is also a highly moralized psychology. It really does map the terrain of the holy and the righteous and the sinners and the saints and the pure and the unclean. It might seem like the biblical people are very superstitious, thinking that somehow contact with sinners was contaminating. You, You know that, right? That's ridiculous. What a superstitious idea that somehow evil or morality can rub off of one person onto me. Why would contact? We seem to be past that. We're not. Here's another weird psychology study. They they bring people into a psychological laboratory and they they pull out a ratty old sweater. And they tell people, this this was Hitler's sweater. Would Would you like to put it on? How would you feel? Matches the colors of your eyes. It looks good on you. It's delightful. Most of, most of us, most subjects report in the lab, they don't want to put it on. Wear it. You know, it's just a sweater. Take it home, give it a good wash, hang in your closet. I, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep with Hitler's sweater in my closet. Be lying in bed, worried about the sweater, what it's touching. I'd want to put plastic around it. In the middle of the night, I'd feel evil emanating from my closet. And we're like, I gotta just, let's just burn the sweater. Let's get rid of it. And it seems it's really illogical. Psychologists call this magical thinking. We know that evil does not adhere to wool blends. We know that. It, it's, we're rational, scientific people. We know that. And yet something in our gut thinks that evil can get into fabric. And then if I touch the fabric, it can get into me. We, what you see displayed in the gospel is this separation from the unclean. We, we play the same game. We naturally think that at least a part of our brain senses that evil is a substance that can rub off on us. And so proximity with sinners, those who have strong moral judgments, becomes problematic, emotionally problematic. We're uncomfortable. And so the psychology of us versus them kicks in. The boundary of kindness is erected. Now, some of you, though, might be thinking, oh, I don't feel that. Like, none of what you've described fits me. Like, I don't feel strong sense of revulsion around people. I don't find myself on the hook with what you're describing. Well, okay, if you don't feel revulsion, at least a little bit around certain kinds of people, 
Um, how many of you, though, feel like the world is filled with idiots? You <laughs> might feel that? Okay, you're like, okay, you got me on that one. Like, like I totally think that. Right? Maybe you've been on social media this last week, and at some part of your brain felt, my gosh, the world is filled with idiots. I just, everywhere I turn, people are messing things up, making bad decisions, if they would just get their acts straight. And so we feel a great deal of contempt for the world. Maybe not disgust, but contempt. But what's interesting is that the psychology of disgust and contempt, they're very similar. If I could film your face while you watched your Facebook feed, I would detect these kind of involuntary wrinkles of the nose. Both disgust and contempt are, are, are rooted in that primal food aversion set system where what we're seeing is almost like rotten meat. You know, contemptuous people look down their nose, lift their nose as if something smells beneath them. They're very similar psychologies. And it's also, like discussed, a very dehumanizing emotion, contempt. And I think all of us experience that a lot, every day. Scorn, disdain, contempt, feelings of superiority. And it's a highly toxic emotion. You know the number one emotion that predicts divorce is? The number one emotion that predicts a divorce in a relationship? The most toxic emotion? Contempt. To be contemptuous of a spouse. And why is that? Well, contempt has, has four main features to it. One, it's that feeling of superiority, viewing another person, a spouse, a friend, somebody in your office as inferior. In addition, it's, it's a judgment that those people can't get any better. They're hopeless. Lost causes. There's emotional detachment. That's the third one. And then relational avoidance. Ponder that. Ponder how much you and I, through social media and cable news and talk radio, marinate our hearts and our minds in contempt every day. Think about how much we just marinate in that. They are inferior. They are hopeless. Emotional detachment and avoidance. And suddenly, you begin to sense about why Jesus' transgressive love is so hard. Because when you start thinking about those people we hold in disdain, it's a bit shocking if you're following Jesus' Instagram feed and he's taking a selfie with somebody and you're like, what's he doing with that person? That's what it looked like and felt like when Jesus touched lepers. And we all have our lepers. I know some of us think, yeah, yeah, you're really doing a really good job of describing like judgmental Christian fundamentalists. Those finger-wagging people about, you know, who judge the world. Ecclesians are not like that. We're lovers. But liberals and conservatives 
have their own version of who the wicked are, do we not? We all have our version of who a bad person is. We all have our target when we're going at somebody who goes like, you're the idiot that's making the world worse. We all, we're all on the hook here. And so we draw an affectional circle between us and them, between those we find it very easy to love, very natural, my people, and those other people out there, our sinners and our lepers, our tax collectors and our sinners. And yet there Jesus is over there, on the other side of the emotional line I drew in the sand. I really do think his beauty will save the world after we get over the shock of it. But here's the gospel, church. In Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus was crucified outside of the camp. Outside of the camp, outside of the circle, outside of the pure, outside of us. He's crucified outside of the camp. And for me, that camp is largely emotional. He has been crucified outside of my comfort zone. And the Hebrew writer says, let us go out of the camp, out of our comfort zone, cross that boundary, and meet him there. And that's where he'll show up. Last time I was here, I was telling you guys a story about uh, teaching the Beatitudes out at a maximum security prison. I don't know if you remember that. I lead a Bible study for about 50 inmates at the French Robertson unit. And in that story, I was talking about how I was trying to share the Beatitudes out at the prison. And uh, you might recall they, they, didn't, they weren't buying it. They, uh, what they said to me that day was like, you can't do that stuff in here. Kindness, tenderness, it's dangerous in here. You could get hurt. And if, if you remember, I didn't know what to say that day. So here's the end of the story. I, I vowed that night that, that if I ever returned back to that skepticism, that I would push a little harder. And a couple months later, I got my chance. And we were at this story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I'm describing the tenderness of Jesus' act, of taking the towel off and kneeling and touching the feet and washing them. And I'm getting that same skeptical look. And I said, I've seen this look before. And they said, yeah, yes, you have. But again, you can't show that kind of servanthood, tenderness, submission, vulnerability in here. You'll get hurt. But I said, come on, guys. Is there any time, maybe just for a minute, when you can show this kind of tenderness and compassion and kindness? Maybe with a, a very trusted person. Anybody in the room? Silence. And then on the front row, uh, Mr. Noriega raised his hand. Now, I call him Mr. Noriega because he's a very large, tattooed man uh, who scares me. And uh, he, he can bench press multiple times my own weight. I mean, I'm, I, he can snap me in two. And uh, so I was surprised to see his hand go up. And I said, Mr. Norega, do you have an example? And he goes, well, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but, you know, sometimes I help my cellie. Sometimes I help my cellmate. 
And since this was my only response to my question, I said, well, let's go with this. So, Mr. Jerry, like, how do you help your celly? How do you help your cellmate? And he says, well, my celly, he's not too bright. And on this point, everybody in the room agrees. That's true. His, cell, his celly isn't very bright. <laughs> and, uh, but as I inquired about it, it became clear to me that his celly had a cognitive disability. And because of that, he needed somebody to kind of help him get through the day. Know what to do, know where to go. So wanting to be more specific, I said, well, Mr. Noriega, can you give me an example of how you helped your, your cellmate? And he said, well, when I first got my celly, uh, he never took off his shoes. As in never. Like, he wore his shoes to bed. He wore his shoes into the shower. 24-7, never took off his shoes, ever. And Mr. Noriega was like, fixated about this. He, was, he just kept asking him, why don't you ever take off your shoes? Because Texas prisons are not air-conditioned. And in the middle of a hot, sweaty summer, you could imagine what sweaty feet and shoes that never came off would start looking like. And the days pass, and the months pass, and he's never taken off his shoes. And Mr. Urega is going crazy. He keeps asking him, why don't you ever take off your shoes? And his celly would never tell him. And finally, he broke him down and he confessed. He didn't take off his shoes, he said, because he was embarrassed. But didn't know how to take care of his toenails. So Mr. Noriega said, so I sat him down. And I went and got a pan of warm water. And I came back into the cell and I unlaced his shoes for the first time in months. And you could imagine what it smelled like and what it looked like. Disgusting, revolting, and nauseating. But he said, I put his feet in the warm water to soften the nails, and I lifted his foot, and I put it in my lap, and I dried it. And then he paused, and he goes, and I don't know what anybody would have thought at that moment if they had walked by the cell his foot in his lap. His tenderness is risky there. So if I put his foot in my lap and I cut his toenails for him and showed him how to do it. And the room was completely silent. Nobody had expected to hear this story of almost a mother-like tenderness coming from this large, scary, tattooed man. And I'm crying. And then he says, is that an example of what you're talking about? <laughs> and, and I said, yes, yes, Mr. Norega, that is very much, sir, a good example of what I'm talking about. You go outside the camp. You find Jesus out in the prison. And I think Mr. Noriega's own example speaks to the transgressive love of Jesus. Because trust me, if you and I had found ourselves face to face with those feet that day, I don't think you would have been like, oh, what a gorgeous, beautiful moment this is. 
It was going to snap a picture of those feet and put it on Instagram with a hashtag, Jesus feet. (laughs) Make all your friends swoon at the aesthetic beauty of what you're staring right in the face and smelling. This is a beauty, but it's a hard one. But, if when you heard that story, you teared up a little, like I did, if when you heard that story, your heart swelled a little bit bigger, then you have seen the kingdom of God. You have seen a transgressive love. You have borne witness to the beauty that will save the world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us softer hearts. Help us follow you in outside the camp. Help us model your shocking love that takes us outside of our comfort zones. Help us be the beautiful people that will help you save this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.